Sudden unexplained death in epilepsy, SUDEP, refers to the unexplained death of a seemingly healthy person with epilepsy where no cause of death can be found. What do doctors need to know about this mysterious and devastating phenomenon? This is Clinician's Roundtable, and I'm Dr. Andrew Wildner. With me today is Dr. Elizabeth Donner, Director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Program and Associate Professor, Department of Pediatrics, University of Toronto. She has published several papers on SUDEP over the past 15 years. Dr. Donner, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me today. Dr. Donner, you're one of the authors of the recent practice guideline from the American Academy of Neurology and the American Epilepsy Society on SUDEP. What is SUDEP? SUDEP is exactly as it stands for sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, and it really refers to the sudden unexpected death of a person living with epilepsy. We know that people with epilepsy are at increased risk of death compared to the general population, and some of those deaths are related to this phenomenon known as SUDEP. Who's at risk for SUDEP? Really, anybody who has epilepsy is at increased risk of sudden death compared to the general population. When we look at who is most at risk of SUDEP, we see that the most important risk factor for SUDEP is the presence of generalized tonic-clonic seizures. And the more generalized tonic-clonic seizures a person has, the more their risk of SUDEP goes up. Now, that's an interesting statement because it leads us to cancel patients and physicians to work towards reducing the number of generalized convulsive seizures that people with epilepsy are having. And I think that most clinicians and patients respond to that information by saying, well, I'm already trying to have as few seizures as I can. We're already working on that with my patient population. But I'm not sure that all physicians and people affected by epilepsy understand that there's actually a risk of death associated with increased frequency of convulsive seizures. And even for those that do understand that, it's important to recognize that the number of seizures that increase risk is not actually that high. For example, people with three or more generalized tonic-clonic seizures per year have a 15-fold increased risk of SUDEP. Even having three or more GTCs a year has a very significant impact on risk. So for that reason, we recognize that the most important risk factor for SUDEP is frequent generalized tonic-clonic seizures. I would think that would be a fairly strong motivator. I did see a patient a couple weeks ago came to the emergency room, a middle-aged man with epilepsy for most of his life, and he doesn't take any anti-epileptic medications because he doesn't want to. Maybe we should share this information with him and it might help motivate him to take medications. When should physicians tell their patients about SUDEP? This is a topic that I'm actually quite passionate about. The issue around SUDEP disclosure, talking to people with epilepsy and their families about SUDEP risk, is one that has been the topic of consideration for several groups in the past. It began in the United Kingdom with recommendations from a body there that SUDEP information should be shared with every person living with epilepsy. Some years ago, the American Epilepsy Society, combined with the Epilepsy Foundation in the U.S., put out a white paper that I was part of that also counseled that physicians should be talking to patients about SUDEP. Then the Institute of Medicine report in the U.S. echoed that finding. And then most recently, our American Academy of Neurology and American Epilepsy Society guideline around SUDEP has counseled that clinicians should be informing people with epilepsy about the risk of SUDEP. 
and an important point with regards to how we talk to people with epilepsy and their families about SUDEP is that sometimes that conversation can actually be reassuring. Now, I have to admit, I am a pediatric neurologist, so most of the families that I'm talking to are parents and children. I recognize that most parents who have witnessed their child have a seizure have worried that their child is going to die. And often, it's really the elephant in the room. If a family or a loved one doesn't ask you about the risk of death associated with seizures or with epilepsy, maybe they're just too scared to ask about it. But many times, they are worried about it. And so for that reason, I feel that the conversation is easy to have and that sometimes we're actually reassuring people. Our recent American Academy of Neurology guideline very clearly states some incidence rates that we can explain to families. The recommendation is that clinicians caring for children with epilepsy should be informing parents or guardians that the risk of SUDEP in children is rare and that in one year, SUDEP would typically affect one in 4,500 children living with epilepsy. Specifically, per year, 4,499 of 4,500 children would not be affected by SUDEP. And I'm going to talk a little bit afterwards about the incidence in children because there's some newer data to suggest it actually might be a bit higher. But regardless, those guidelines are very clear about how we should explain this to families. And for adults, the recommendation is that clinicians should inform adults living with epilepsy that there is a small risk of SUDEP and that that risk is, in one year, SUDEP typically affects 1 in 1,000 adults with epilepsy. In other words, annually, 999 of 1,000 adults will not be affected by SUDEP. So for some people, that can be a reassuring conversation. And for some, it may be a call to action. Like the gentleman you saw in the emergency room who doesn't want to use his medications, it may be a call to action to consider treatment. And I have one more thing to add to that, which is that we frequently encounter people living with epilepsy who are reluctant to pursue other treatments for epilepsy, such as epilepsy surgery, even when that surgery may actually offer a cure for their seizures. And sometimes that information about SUDEP can be helpful for that as well. Yes, I think that's very important balance. I did have a patient who absolutely refused to consider surgery because there was the risk that she might die. And of course, the risk of death from epilepsy surgery is extremely low. And in fact, the risk of death from continued seizures is significantly higher. So it's not just that surgery is dangerous, but continued seizures are probably even more dangerous for most patients. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Donner, Director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Program at the University of Toronto and one of the authors of the American Academy of Neurology's and American Epilepsy Society's new guideline on sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, or SUDEP. We've talked a little bit about the risks of SUDEP. What causes SUDEP? That's a great question and not one that has a simple answer. I think when you consider that we're talking about a category of death where the death is unexpected and the autopsy does not demonstrate a cause of death, we're probably talking about a multifactorial group here where there is not going to be one single identified cause for SUDEP. Some of the very enticing hypotheses are related to genetics, for example. We know that the common cause of sudden unexplained cardiac death is related to some genes that control different potassium and other channels and how those affect cardiac function. 
And we also know that epilepsy can be related to different channelopathies as well that are genetically determined. So sodium channel disorders, potassium channel disorders, calcium and others. And so for that reason, it is a bit of an attractive hypothesis that there could, in some individuals with epilepsy, be a genetic mutation that results in a channel disorder that affects both brain and heart. And so in those cases, perhaps people have both seizures and an increased risk of sudden death. There's other information that has come out of clinical research that points to what happens in the last moments before a person dies of SUDEP, and those demonstrate changes in the postictal period and changes in the EEG suggesting really a state of cerebral shutdown, something called postictal generalized EEG suppression. For those that read EEG, they will recognize that as really just a complete flattening of the activity at the cortex. Many SUDEP deaths that have been recorded in epilepsy monitoring units have shown that following a convulsive seizure, there is this period of electrocerebral shutdown, which is then followed by first respiratory and then cardiac arrest. So not a simple answer as to what causes SUDEP, but I think there's going to be a multifactorial answer in the end. Now, SUDEP is fairly infrequent. You mentioned uh, 1 in 4,500 children and 1 in 1,000 adults per year. So how does one study it? There must be research programs for SUDEP. There are, absolutely. In fact, I'm involved with something called the North American SUDEP Registry. And through this collaboration, we collect information on cases of SUDEP from around North America and sometimes from Europe as well. We gather information about the person's epilepsy, about their investigations with regards to their epilepsy, about the autopsy findings. And we also have the opportunity to collect brain tissue and genetic information. And it does require a very large collaborative approach to study something that is relatively rare. There's also a nice, large research initiative called the Center for SUDEP Research that is funded by the NINDS that is taking a similar multi-center approach to the study of SUDEP. I would like to address the incidence studies of SUDEP because the numbers that I quoted earlier and those that are found in the American Academy of Neurology, American Epilepsy Society guideline that we're talking about today have been drawn from the available literature at the time when we published the study. But it is very well recognized that it's hard to find cases of SUDEP. And some of the challenges there have been around how should we best look for these cases. So most of us who do this work take a multi-pronged approach. We accept cases from physicians who have known about the case, family members who have lost someone. We search through hospital records, death reports, government data to try and find these cases. And there's a recent study that's just been published in the journal Neurology from Torbjorn Thompson's group. Dr. Svensson is the first author. They actually found quite a few interesting findings. One of the important findings that I would like to highlight is that, in fact, the incidence of SUDEP in children in their group, and for that they spoke of children under the age of 16, was actually very near equivalent to the incidence in adults. And they had concluded in their paper that relying on death certificates to find SUDEP cases will result in an underestimate of SUDEP incidence. So I think it's important for us to recognize that even though SUDEP is relatively rare, it's quite possible that the number of cases that we're identifying in our research studies is not really representative of the true number. The practice guideline indicates that generalized tonic-clonic seizures are a risk factor for SUDEP. 
I know in papers I've read, there was a suggestion that certain anti-epileptic drugs or combination of drugs might increase the risk. What is the current thinking? So it is true that at some point it looked like polytherapy treatment with more than one anticonvulsant for epilepsy conferred an increased risk of SUDEP. One of the papers that suggested that had a reanalysis of the data done, and once they actually controlled for frequency of generalized tonic-clonic seizures, they realized that the number of drugs that a person was taking for their epilepsy was not an independent risk factor for SUDEP. So probably what was happening there was the people with more seizures were taking more medications, and they were also at an increased risk of SUDEP, but the risk was not related to the number of medications. Philippe Rivlin and his group did a very nice study that further suggested that medications do not increase the risk of SUDEP. In fact, perhaps medication is protective. What they did is looked at, I think it was 112 randomized controlled trials for new anticonvulsant therapy, and they looked at the SUDEP rates in all those industry-sponsored RCTs. What they found was that the risk of SUDEP was significantly lower in subjects in those trials who had received the investigational drug at a therapeutic dose when compared to people who had received a placebo. And so what that suggested was that adding on a drug to the current regime is actually reducing SUDEP risk rather than increasing SUDEP risk. So for that reason, in the community of people who research SUDEP and talk about SUDEP, we don't believe at this time that there's any reason to believe that any single drug or the number of drugs increases SUDEP risk. In fact, treating epilepsy is very, very likely to be protective for SUDEP. Given that there is a risk, what can people with epilepsy and their families do to prevent SUDEP? That's a pretty common question, and I think it's important for us as treating physicians and healthcare providers to have an idea of how we can offer families and people living with epilepsy ideas of how to reduce their risk. Probably the most powerful tool we have to reduce risk at this point is education. We need to talk to people about it so they understand that their risk is strongly linked to the frequency of their seizures. And so because of that, reducing SUDEP risk is about reducing seizure frequency. Now, in my practice, I see almost exclusively children with drug-resistant epilepsy. So I do understand that we're not always able to reduce seizure burden in people living with epilepsy, but I do think it's important that people understand that all our efforts to reduce seizure burden are also an effort to save lives. And so we need to have that focus. So anything that works to reduce seizure burden is potentially an effective SUDEP risk reduction tool. That includes taking medications, prescribing appropriate medications, considering other treatments when medication fails. That may include diet therapy. Certainly, that's a big part of the treatment of drug-resistant epilepsy in children. It certainly includes surgical evaluation. It might include the vagal nerve stimulator, as well as helping people to identify what are the triggers for their seizures so that they can try and avoid those triggers. And finally, there has been a lot of discussion around the role of nocturnal supervision with regards to reducing SUDEP risk. 
It has been long observed that the majority of SUDEP deaths occur from sleep or in bed. The most common scenario is that the deceased is found dead in bed in the morning. And so for that reason, people have looked at whether some form of nocturnal supervision, be it room sharing with another individual or the use of an auditory listening device like a baby monitor, whether these kinds of things reduce SUDEP risk. And at this point, it does appear that the use of nocturnal supervision reduces SUDEP risk. In fact, in the recent American Academy of Neurology, American Epilepsy Society guidelines, there was a recommendation that for people with generalized tonic-clonic seizures and nocturnal seizures, clinicians can advise patients and families that the use of a nocturnal listening device or other nocturnal precautions may reduce SUDEP risk. And that is something that I talk to families about when I'm seeing people who have nocturnal seizures, nocturnal convulsive seizures, or really any generalized tonic-clonic seizures. I would like to comment, however, that I recognize that can be challenging. I know that many adults living with epilepsy can be socially isolated and that we have to be cautious when we give that type of counseling if the person receiving it does not have the option of living in a supervised environment or living with someone who could respond to them at night with a seizure. And for that reason, that information really does need to be tailored to the circumstances of the individual patient. Well, it sounds like people who are having ongoing seizures should not be complacent and accepting of these continued seizures until they've worked very closely with a neurologist or a pediatric epileptologist and visited a comprehensive epilepsy center and considered all the modalities, and you mentioned many, that can contribute to seizure control. I agree. And part of this whole discussion, as you just highlighted, is that people with drug-resistant epilepsy should be evaluated at an epilepsy program where all those different treatments can be offered. And I hope that that's one of the take-home messages of our discussion today. Dr. Donner, I'd like to thank you for joining us at ReachMD today and discussing SUDEP. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wilner. To access this episode and others in this series and to download the ReachMD app, please visit ReachMD.com, where you can be part of the knowledge. We encourage you to leave comments and share this program with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. <laughs>